welcome to Songs of Praise from 3ABN Australia Radio.
sunlight beaming through All creation reveals you At your word the heavens made There your glory is displayed Take the time to see Majesty of heaven, take the time to be in the presence of the King. Look around and see the portrait painted just for you. Just stop and be.
Yeah.
This is Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. Dear God, as I journey, 
Listening to Songs of Praise. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. 
just lift your cross and follow close to me. I work so hard for Jesus. I often boast and say I've sacrificed a lot of things to walk the narrow I gave up fame and fortune I'm worth a lot to thee And then I hear him gently Say to me I left the throne of glory And counted it but loss My hands were nailed in anger Upon a cruel cross But now we'll make the journey With your hand safe in mine So lift your cross and follow If I die upon a foreign field someday, twould be no more than love demands, no less could I repay. No greater love hath mortal man than for a friend to die. These are the words he gently spoke to me. If just a cup of water I place within your hand, just a cup of water is all that I But if by death to living they can thy glory see, I'll take my cross and
You're listening to 3ABN Australia Radio's Songs of Praise. I've found a sweet haven of sunshine at last In Jesus abiding above His dear arms around me are lovingly clasped How sweetly He dealt His love The danger, the tempest forever is o'er My anchor is holding, I'm safe forevermore What gladness, what rapture is mine The water's receding, the danger is past I'm feeling so happy, I'm anchored at last I'm anchored in love divine Saw me in danger and lovingly came To pilot my stormy young soul Sweet peace he is offered and blessed his dear name The billows no longer roll The danger, the tempest forever is o'er My anchor is holding, I'm safe evermore What gladness, what rapture is Shall control me through life and through death How sweetly I'll trust till the end I'll praise Him each hour and my last dying breath Shall sing of my soul's best friend The danger, the tempest forever is o'er My anchor is holding, I'm safe evermore What gladness, what rapture is mine song of peace from the toils that bind me it will bring release burdens will be lifted that are pressing so showers of great blessing or my heart will flow sing to me me of heaven let me fondly fondly dream of its golden glory of its pearly Sing to me me when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me of heaven's sweetest song of all. Sing to me of heaven as I walk alone, dreaming of the comrades that so long have gone. In a fairer region among the angel throng, They are happy as they sing that old sweet song. Sing to me of heaven, let me fondly dream of its golden glory, of its pearly gleam. 
Sing to me when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me of heaven's sweetest song of all. Sing to me of heaven tenderly and low, till the shadows o'er me rise and swiftly go. When my heart is weary, when the day is long, sing to me of heaven, sing that old sweet song. Sing to me of heaven, let me fondly dream of its golden glory, of its pearly gleam. Sing to me when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me of heaven, sweetest, sweetest song There'll be no tears. 
Listening to Songs of Praise, a production of Threben Australia Radio. Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we're continuing I Saw God's Hand by the late missionary pastor Elwyn Martin. Much of the book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Amazing Facts. 
Our last reading from the chapter A Promise is a Promise told the story of Elwyn Martin making a promise to a heathen chief to come to his village and tell his villagers the story of Jesus. On the way, he, with two other pastors, were searching for land to establish a mission. They had been promised land by three separate groups of people, but each time the negotiations had fallen through. But early one morning, Elwyn was told by a lone warrior that he had come with an offer of a very good piece of land. We continue the story. He returned some hours later with his two brothers and a local policeman. Our hearts were filled to overflowing, for within a short distance of the airstrip, we saw the best ground that we had seen in the whole of our search. This was surely the answer to our prayers. The next day at the government office we lost little time in completing the necessary documents. All three owners placed their mark on the paper. The government officer stood aghast and said, How did you get the best piece of land in the valley? Today we have one of the most beautiful mission stations in the whole of our highland work in the Tari Valley and have baptised scores of the Tari people. Several years went by before I heard exactly how our prayers came to be answered so marvellously. While we were being frustrated day by day in our search for land with the constant refusals to sell, word of our arrival in the area reached the old chief, the one to whom I had given the promise that one day I would come and tell the story. When told that Pastor Martin and two other white masters were in the area under his control trying to purchase land and after he had established the fact that I was the one he had met at the Tarama River he sent three of his warriors with instructions to give us as much as we needed of the very best ground they had. Surely the master works things out in his own ways. We begin our next chapter entitled Big Shame No Lap Lap. As the impact of Haru's preaching spread from Doni's village area, mountain tribesmen came down in small groups to find out for themselves what had caused the Tarama people to cease their relentless cannibalistic raids on the mountain villages. For decades, the mountain people had lived in fear. Their men dared not sleep at night for fear of an attack. With faltering and hesitating steps, the heavily armed mountain people at last ventured into Old Doni's village to ask the reason why the raids had ceased. Doni was now deceased, but they were told by Haru and some of the village people that they were no longer cannibals but were followers of the big fella master on top, the master of heaven. Unable to understand, the mountain people asked that they be told the story of the big master. On one of my quarterly trips into the Tarama River area, I was told that a number of mountain people representing several villages had carried down heavy loads of food from their Einland homes and had sat on the riverbank for several weeks in the hope that I would come. I was sorry to learn that they had returned to the mountains the week before I arrived. They had waited day by day until, finally, their food supplies were exhausted. On the Sabbath, during the Sabbath service, 
I asked the people of Doni's village whether they could remember the first night that I was among them and what they were doing. Yes, we remember, they said. We have a big shame. That means our very ashamed, for we were eating human flesh that very night. I then asked them to tell me why they no longer ate human flesh. Unhesitatingly, they told of the change that had been wrought by the master they now served and loved. Do you know, I asked, that the same people against whom you used to launch your attacks are now waiting for the time when they too may hear of the wonderful Christ? In response, a young man by the name of Mutor and his young wife stood up to their feet. Then another young man, Kamoi, and his wife stood, followed by another by the name of Kuruki and yet another called Sapoi. These four young men and their wives told me that they would take the story to their former enemies. I certainly did not expect this to happen, for they themselves were only twelve months removed from deepest heathenism. I will not be able to pay you, I said. We do not want or expect any pay, they replied. We can never forget the night old Doni, our chief, died. He called several of us young men to his side and said, we have a debt that we can never repay to the mountain villages for our killing. I am dying. You must take the story of the Master's love to the mountain people. On Sunday morning, I gave each young couple a lantern, two bottles of kerosene, an enamel basin, a boiler for cooking food, a lap-lap for each man, and a skirt for each wife. They also received a large bush knife and an axe. Early the next morning, after Haru and I had prayed earnestly for heaven's benediction and blessing to rest upon them, these four young couples gathered up their few earthly possessions, and after touching farewells and embraces, left for the mountains. My parting words to them were that I would visit them in the mountain villages in about six weeks. On the patrol inland six weeks later, I was accompanied by Alf Chapman, an Australian, who was headmaster of the training school in my field. One hard day's walking brought us to a small village where we stayed overnight. After a few choruses and a story from the picture roll, we sat down with some of the older men from the village to learn of their customs and superstitions. Usually these old men are at first reluctant to talk, but I have always found that they can be encouraged to talk, and often it is difficult to stop them. The procedure I used was to pick out something that appealed to their ego. Perhaps I would say, Is it true that you people are the fiercest fighters in the mountains? Or maybe... Is it true that you are the greatest marksmen and make the best spears and bows and arrows? Generally, that was all that was needed to start them. Then I merely interrupted them to direct their conversation along other channels, such as, how do you bury your dead? How do you initiate your young men into manhood? Or how do you determine when one of your girls has reached marriageable age? Two hours walking the next morning brought us to the village where Karuki had located. After greetings, I asked, how many people live in the village? Forty-nine. How many are in your baptismal class? Forty-nine. 
but there are a few children who are really too young to understand. Amazing indeed after six weeks' work. After spending a day and a night with Karuki, we walked for another three and a half hours to reach Kamoi's village. Again, I asked the same questions. How many people in this village? Thirty-eight. And how many in the baptismal class? Thirty-eight. We spent about the same amount of time with Kamoi, and then after a further four-hour work, we arrived at Muto's location. He had all 62 villages attending worships and keeping Sabbath. Finally, a further two hours' walk brought us to Sapoi's village, and again we listened to similar amazing results. During the next 18 months, I visited these volunteer missionaries at about 12 to 14 week intervals. I never ceased to wonder at the knowledge of these mountain people displayed during their baptismal classes. I was amazed that these recently converted volunteer missionaries could impart so much knowledge. On almost every visit inland, I used to take kerosene and soap for the volunteers, and from time to time, a skirt for the wife and a lap-lap for the husband. But otherwise, they received no payment whatsoever. On one of these patrols, I suggested a time six weeks ahead when all the baptismal candidates whom the missionaries considered ready should meet me at Old Doni's village. Haru also had a number of candidates awaiting baptism in the beautiful river there. When the appointed day came, I was overwhelmed as I saw the number of people who had come down from the mountains to be baptised. I greeted everyone during the evening of the day prior to the baptism. Somehow I wasn't unduly concerned that I had not seen the volunteer missionaries. My guess was that they were busy visiting some of their own people in their home village. The next morning when all the candidates were lined up on the riverbank and each name had been checked, I asked someone to find Karuki, Kamoi, Muto and Sapoi. I learned to my dismay that they had not come down from the mountains. How could that be? They had every right to be here with their candidates. Someone spoke up and said, Master, altogether missionary got big shame too much because he not got lap-lap. They were too ashamed to come down because their lap-laps had worn out. I could have wept for my carelessness and lack of thought. Here before me were the results of their work, yet they were not present to witness the baptism. If it had been reasonably possible, I would have postponed the baptism, but I could not, as these lovely mountain people with their radiant happiness and beaming faces had walked many, many hours to demonstrate that they had been truly born again. The next chapter is Then to the Highlands. During 1954, Mrs. Martin and I received a letter from the Coral Sea Union Mission Headquarters advising that we were being transferred to Madang on the northern coast of New Guinea, almost directly opposite our current location on the southwestern coast. This call caused us a good deal of anxiety because the work in our field, particularly in the Tarama and A River areas, was going like a prairie fire. This great field, consisting of the Gulf and Western divisions of Papua, had become part of our lives. 
I wrote to the Coral Sea Union Committee requesting that they give further consideration to the call. I could not see light in moving because of the vast areas that were opening up. To our disappointment, the call was sustained. So we felt that we had no alternative but to pack up, for a call was a call to us, even though we could not always see the wisdom in it. The Union Mission Committee requested that I take my mission boat to Port Moresby, fly from there to Ley, about 200 miles away, over the Owen Stanley Range, pick up another mission boat there, and sail it from Ley to Madang. While in Madang, I received a further call, this time to a place called Paglam, near Mount Hagen in the western highlands of New Guinea, to take over a new mission station. The land had been purchased and a few temporary buildings had been erected. Within a few weeks, my wife and children flew from Port Moresby to Mount Hagen to join me. We were thrilled with the Paglam mission station that looks out over the great Wagi Valley, a scene that continually delighted us. One thing that dampened our enthusiasm a little was that we had to live in a grass house with a bamboo floor. Every time there was heavy rain, we had to put up umbrellas and place saucepans, buckets and dishes in strategic places to keep our beds from getting wet. Besides, there were one or two holes in the floor and several more weak places to be continued. Tune in again next week for the next episode of I Saw God's Hand, written by Elwyn Martin and read by Alan Lindsay. Listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Psalm 95 is a call to worship and to obedience. Let us gather together to worship the Lord. Let us sing joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us bring him an offering of thanksgiving. Let us praise him loudly with psalms. For the Lord is such a great God. He is the king who is higher than any god. He holds in his hand the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are in his hand too. The sea is his, for he made it, and he formed the earth with his hands. Come now, and let us worship and bow down to him. Let us kneel before our creator. He is our god. We are grazing in his fields, and we are his sheep under his care. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts against me, as your ancestors did at Meribah, and as in the days of Massah in the wilderness, when your forefathers tested me. They rebelled against me even when they saw the things I did for them. For forty long years, they were a mutinous people, and I said, these are a people who planned their rebellion. They do not want to know my ways, so I vowed in my anger they shall not enter into the rest of the promised land.